You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, a woman tells a story about a very persistent dog in her neighborhood. She tells it like this. She says, this tired-looking dog wandered into my yard. And I could tell from his collar and well-fed belly that he had a home and was well taken care of. He calmly came over to me and I gave him a few pats on his head. He then followed me into my house. He slowly walked down the hall, curled up in the corner, and he fell asleep. And we have a picture of that dog right here. Looks pretty comfortable, huh? Well, about an hour later, he went to the door and I let him out, she says. And she goes on with the story and she says the next day he was back. He greeted me in my yard, walked inside, resumed his spot in the hallway, and again, slept for about an hour. And this continued on and off for several weeks. Curious, I pinned a note to his collar stating, I would like to find out who the owner of this wonderful dog is and ask if you are aware that almost every afternoon your dog comes to my house for a nap. (laughs) The next day he arrived for his nap and he had a different note pinned to his collar and it said, he lives in a home with six children. Two are under the age of three. And he's trying to catch up on his sleep. Can I come with him tomorrow? Comfort. Comfort. Comfort is our theme today. And is there a better picture of comfort than that one that we just saw? In this six-week sermon series during Lent, we're studying the book of Isaiah, and particularly we're going to look at the four songs of the servant. There are four passages in this later half or later third of the book of Isaiah, and we're going to look at those four songs of the servant in order to discover and to enact in our own lives what it means to follow Jesus as his servants. And in these six weeks and in these four servant songs, we've identified six practices that help us to examine and to apply what it means to live into Christ's life-giving invitation to serve, to love our world. And so, as I said, today we're looking at comfort as a servant practice. To get that? Comfort as a servant practice. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of comfort, uh, I don't think of it as a practice. I think of it as a condition. I mean, my natural inclination is to think of comfort as a goal, as in getting comfortable. And when I think about comfort, I imagine crawling into bed and nestling deep down into the covers and burrowing under my down comforter. The prevailing notion of comfort is to find rest, to seek refuge, to withdraw from the craziness and the chaos and the demands of this world around us. In other words, to escape from those metaphorical six kids that constantly are invading and dominating our lives. 
comfort as a practice of engagement with the world? That's just a very strange way to think about it. Well, as we open the Bible and uh, look into it for answers around this notion of comfort as practice, we go to the book of Isaiah and we discover this word comfort at the beginning of chapter 40. The prophet encounters God in the context of a vision or a dream and the pronouncement that the Most High God makes is comfort. Comfort, O my people. This message comes to the Jewish community about 35 years after the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem that left the Jewish nation shattered and subdued and enslaved in Babylon. 35 years into their exile, Isaiah is addressing a people that has experienced life as chaos. The sacred center that had previously made sense of their world and held together their universe was a distant memory. The social structures and the institutions that had established order and made sense of their life had given away to the void that was filled with exploiters and opportunists, with pagan spirituality, and the iron fist of an oppressive ruler. Confusion dominated their daily experience. Life had long ago lost its center, and they were a community adrift. They were a community without hope. And so these words, comfort, oh comfort my people, are pronounced among them. And you can imagine their response. These words come as a great surprise. To the hearers of this message, this signals a turn of events. A reversal of fortune. Something new is about to happen in their world. These words pronouncing comfort signals that a dramatic change is coming. And the remainder of the book of Isaiah, from right here from chapter 40 all the way to the end, chapter 66, reflects this message, this new message. This book, this portion of the book, has come to be known as the book of comfort. And in this portion of the book, Isaiah presents God as a dynamic, destiny-shaping presence in the midst of human history. The message of these chapters is that all that exists finds its being and purpose in relationship to the living God, who is at the center of all of life. Now, our conventional notion of comfort as consolation as a condition of withdrawal is not the notion of comfort that God is communicating here. Perhaps we can best understand this notion of comfort as practice if we look carefully at this word. If we take a step back, we get some fresh perspective. We look at its construction, its components, its component parts. The word comfort is comprised of two components. The first one is come, C-O-M. And C-O-M, come, means with, alongside. And the second component is fort, which means strength. Comfort, to come alongside with strength. Comfort is the practice of shared strength, lending strength, or entering into a situation or coming alongside in the spirit of solidarity. And so this message of comfort 
comes to them not so much as consolation, but as invitation. This vision of divine purpose is presented not as an avenue of escape from the nitty-gritty of the world, but as an invitation to join God in the restoration of his world, to participate with the creator as an agent of bringing universal justice and shalom. This notion of comfort is transformed here from a condition to be enjoyed to a practice that through God's spirit brings justice. God is up to something. And the people are uniquely invited to participate. This vision and mission of God becomes personified. Becomes personified in this character in these later chapters called the servant. This mysterious character whose nature and mission is portrayed in four images. These four servant songs. And we're going to take a look at this first servant song tonight. Our text this evening is from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. And if you'd like to uh, open up your Bible with me, uh, or if you're using the Black Bible there in the pew, you can find that passage on page 584. Isaiah chapter 42, starting at verse 1. You know, as we get there, let's just pause for a moment to pray. Pray with me. Holy God, as we open up your word, we pray that by your spirit that you would lead us into it, that you would show us what you have for us in your word. And then by your spirit that you would lead us out of this word, that you would lead us forth from this word, that you would uh, guide us into your world, empowered by this scripture to be your people. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Listen to God's word in Isaiah chapter 42. I'll read it for you. Behold, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his teaching. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God's word to us. So as we meet this servant in this passage, we 
discover that there are certain attributes or characteristics. In fact, there's two particular attributes or characteristics of this servant's identity. The first is that the servant's identity is not defined by anything about the servant. It's not defined by anything intrinsic about the servant, but rather it's defined by God's initiative. The servant is God's chosen. The servant is God's person chosen in God's delight, upheld by God's good decision, intimately embraced in relationship. Look at verse 6. Called, held, kept. These are relationship words. These are intimate relationship words. And also here we discover that the servant, servant is marked and empowered by the gift of God's Holy Spirit. The fullness of God's presence is uniquely with this servant. This is the most intimate of relational language and must be received as somewhat startling news to a community who in their experience of the chaos of daily existence in ex exile must have felt abandoned, forgotten, left without hope. But God here proclaims words of reclamation. Behold, here's my servant. Here's the prototype of your community's identity. You are chosen. You are the object of my delight. I embrace you, uphold you, sustain you, and keep you. I empower you with my spirit. My presence is fully with you. Second, there is a task that defines this servant's identity, that gives shape to his identity. The, the servant's mission is to faithfully and relentlessly bring forth justice. And at the heart of justice is essentially the conditions of creating shalom, this God-designed reality of wholeness. A human flourishing that restores and reorders human relationships in every dimension, personal and societal and structural and ecological, touching every aspect of human life. There is nothing in all of creation that is beyond God's justice. And so in this servant song, God is, a, is announcing an immense reversal He's calling this captive, disillusioned, discouraged, hopeless, vulnerable community to an identity and to a mission that is rooted in God's intimate love for them and that involves his spirit-invested invitation to join him in the relentless work of establishing justice for the whole world. Now, Jesus clearly understood himself in these terms. This servant imagery of Isaiah thoroughly informed Jesus' identity, informed his self-understanding, both in terms of his relationship with God as Father and as defining his life, his mission, and his ministry on earth. More than any other human, Jesus lived a life of transparent intimacy with God. Referring to him in every waking moment as Abba, Father. In every page of the Gospels, we witness a profound intimacy that Jesus enjoyed with the Father. In fact, we hear echoes of this passage of Isaiah chapter 42 in the Gospel of Matthew at Jesus' baptism. The Gospel of Matthew captures that event, and he writes that at the moment of 
that Jesus comes out of the water, that heavens open, the spirit of God descends and a voice surrounding them says, behold, this is my son whom I love in whom I take great delight. Do you hear the echo of Isaiah chapter 42? This is the nature of the intimacy that formed Jesus' self-understanding. Well, Jesus also fully embraced the servant's justice mission. He understood his life in justice terms. In the Gospel of Luke, in, in chapter 4, we see Jesus at the very beginning of his public ministry. He's going home to his hometown, Nazareth. He's coming among his people. He shows up for worship uh, that morning and at the synagogue. And the leaders of the synagogue understand it, that he's a visiting rabbi from their own community. And they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. And Jesus here at the very beginning of his public ministry, when he has this extraordinary opportunity to say, basically, this is what I'm about. This is my mission in the world. He chooses, he chooses a particular passage from Isaiah. He chooses Isaiah chapter 61. And as you hear this, you will hear the echoes from Isaiah chapter 42. Jesus stands before his people in that synagogue and he reads from Isaiah 61 and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you catch the echo from Isaiah chapter 42? Jesus understood himself in terms of this servant figure in Isaiah. He fully engaged in God's mission of shalom. Jesus lived from this premise. On every page of every gospel, you see the sense of calling enacted. Jesus himself embodies the servant's justice mission. Well, in the person of Jesus as servant, we begin to understand God's notion of comfort as shared strength. In his incarnation, in the word become flesh, he is our coming alongside with strength. Jesus is God's coming alongside with strength. Emmanuel, God with us. Solidarity. This rich, intimate relationship is the means by which God identifies with us and gives himself to us by the gift of the Holy Spirit as a means of sharing his strength with the world around us. As a community of Jesus, we are then invited into this richness of relationship and empowered to join him in his justice mission in the world. It sounds so audacious, doesn't it? That God would empower us, that God would fill us by his spirit and use us as agents of his world-restoring justice, that's just outrageous. Not to mention a bit intimidating, daunting, demanding, costly. It's so big. And yet, in the day-to-day -day experience of our lives, it gets lived out in such simple yet profound and powerful ways. 
this call of justice in our lives individually and as a community of faith gets worked out in our moment-to-moment, day-in, day-out relationships. It gets worked out in how we practice comfort through the dimensions of our daily presence and our place. Where we show up and in what manner we engage. Last week I was watching the evening news. Makes me feel very middle-aged to confess that. <laughs> I was watching the, uh, the uh, evening news and, you know, at, in the evening news, you know, you, many of you guys don't know, don't watch evening news, but at the end of the evening news, they have this kind of human interest uh, segment. And I was sitting there watching this and there was a story about uh, this restaurateur in San Francisco. And I sat there and I watched this and I said, oh my gosh, that's justice. That's justice. And so I had to uh, share it with you. So here's, here's the video. And we were inspired by a little restaurant in a great city that's figured out a way to give its workers a much needed safety net. NBC's Cynthia McFadden takes us to dinner. Here in San Francisco, the birthplace of America's counterculture, a new revolution. Ground zero, this tiny French bistro. Owner Jennifer Pila would be the first to say, hers is not the fanciest or the hippest restaurant in town. Here it is, 40. Though the grilled heritage pork chop is hard to beat. What really made Zazie's famous is something else on the menu, right there in the fine print. $1.25 surcharge provides full benefits for our hardworking staff, which is less than 30 minutes in a meter. I had a parking meter out here. Exactly. A parking meter out there will cost you more than $1.25 for 30 minutes. And that provides every staff member, even people that work one day a week, with full benefits, including full health insurance, full dental, paid sick leave, and the 401k with the 4% match. It was a recipe Pila first cooked up after her own career waiting tables. Just always being treated like a thief, that I was replaceable, irrelevant to the business. But when she brought this place 10 years ago, she thought Zazie would be different. So you can live like a grown-up yeah. and work in a restaurant. Exactly. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. And plan for your future. This little restaurant, our 32 employees that contribute to the 401k have over a million dollars in savings. And the average age here is 26. You could personally make a lot more money if you didn't do it this way, couldn't you? No, I don't think I could. The reason for that is that turnover is incredibly expensive. People that have been here a long time can turn out a kind of work level that someone that's only been here six months can't. I'm the chef here. I've been working for those 13 years. I love my job. One of the dishwashers here has been here for 20-something years. Yeah. A dishwasher? Yeah. You can yeah. make your career here. Yes. This is our job. We're not actors who are just trying to make a buck. We're here to stay. To say that just because they don't put on a suit and go to work every day, they don't have a real job or they don't need benefits like a real worker would, is ridiculous. But all this goodwill must come at a cost, right? After all, San Francisco is one of the most competitive restaurant markets in the world. A successful restaurant is profiting 5%. And what do you guys do? Closer to 22. 22% profit? On a good year. <laughs> My accountant's going to kill me for telling you that. A recipe for success that has them all coming back for more. Cynthia McFadden, NBC News, San Francisco. I hope, I hope she didn't get in trouble with her accountant, but um, isn't that an amazing story? Here this uh, restaurateur, this restaurant owner, figured out how to, with just a $1.25 surcharge, 
to provide benefits for her entire staff. For just a dollar twenty, did you did you catch that? They've um, they've saved over a million dollars of 401k retirement funds through that means. That's justice. And here, this woman figured out a shared strength partnership between herself, her customers, and her staff. And justice is done. It's beautiful. Well, last weekend, uh, Kimber and I, my wife Kimber and I, had the privilege of serving Saturday afternoon at the first ever side-by-side winter camp. Yeah? Woohoo! Yeah. Well, most of you know side-by-side. In fact, we mentioned it uh, with regards to daffodils earlier in the service. It's an incredible ministry of this church that enters in and comes alongside with families whose, uh, where a child is battling a life-threatening illness. And uh, JJ, our beloved JJ, um, shared a uh, message from uh, one of the moms who participated in the camp. In fact, it was her Facebook post from Saturday night of camp. And I'd love to to read it to you. She wrote, while kids fall asleep, I'm taking a moment to say how wonderful Camp Side by Side is. It is totally bizarre and wonderful to be one of 16 families who all walk cancer journeys. It's a sad sort of comfort to be surrounded by people who get it. To see bald kids and kids with tubes and ports not being stared at, being normal. Get this. She said, it's like a little piece of our hearts are being healed. Making the new normal not so isolating. She writes, with every parent who shares a piece of their story, I have to resist the urge to grab them and scream, I so get that. What rest our souls are finding? What love side by side has poured out on us? And what a joy it is to know that six months time, we can come back for summer camp. (laughs) And bonus, there's a Tully's coffee cart open with treats at all hours. Do we have to come home tomorrow? Can't we just stay here forever? The practice of comfort is as extraordinary and as simple as enacting solidarity, of getting it, of pouring out life-affirming love, the shared strength that heals and restores. If indeed there is a hope or an imaginable prospect for human flourishing in this fragmented and fractured contemporary world in which we live, it begins when the person of shalom becomes flesh in us and becomes enacted through us towards those with whom we live in the tasks and the work that we are given and in the spheres of influence in which we operate. The practice of comfort, of solidarity, of coming alongside in shared strength. God calls us to attend to the people and places that are right in front of us, to intentionally nurture and cultivate the world that God has given us. That's the invitation to which we're called to pay attention. 
to what is right in front of us, to the, to the community, to our family, to the neighborhood, to our city, to our coworkers, to our classmates, to our world. It is being present in these places where we learn forgiveness and humility, practice kindness and hospitality, where we grow in patience and wisdom, where we have opportunity to act in compassion with gentleness and joy. The fruits of the Spirit. To come alongside with shared strength, to embody the identity and to enact the justice mission of the servant. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you give us a gift. You call us to comfort. You call us into relationship with you as servant and make us servant by the ministry and power of the Holy Spirit that works in us and through us to share your strength. To pay attention to the world where you have placed us and to share your strength. God, by your spirit, I would pray that you would empower us to do that work, to be present in the places you put us. Christ's name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.